Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. The iCritical Care Podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Dr. Richard Savell. Dr. Savell is the Associate Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. He also is an Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care Podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email info at sccm.org. Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast, recorded Wednesday, June 21st, 2006. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today's podcast will focus on an article published in the July issue of Critical Care Medicine, entitled, Therapeutic Hypothermia Utilization Amongst Physicians After Resuscitation from Cardiac Arrest. The reference is Critical Care Medicine, 2006, Volume 34, Number 7. We will have two discussions today. The first is Raina M. Merchant, M.D., a resident in emergency medicine at the University of Chicago, and Benjamin S. Abella, M.D., an assistant professor of medicine in the section of emergency medicine at the University of Chicago. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. I thought we'd start out, um, you know, as uh, as you point out in your article, the recent AHA uh, guidelines for uh, ACLS have strongly recommended that patients with V-fib arrest be cooled for neuroprotection, and most recently based on important articles published in 2002 in, in the New England Journal of Medicine, and uh, yet people don't appear to be doing it. And so I thought I'd begin by letting you talk a little bit about how you designed the study. So the uh, design of the study was similar to a survey that we had done back in 2003, where we basically sent out around 10 questions to physicians over the internet. We selected these physicians from professional associations that were emergency medicine, critical care, and uh, cardiology uh, physicians. And we just wanted to ask them a little bit about their understanding of cooling, why they were or weren't using it, and some of the reasons why. What we found is, as you just suggested, that some of the physicians felt that there wasn't enough data, that it wasn't part of the ACLS guidelines, and that perhaps cooling was um, too difficult of a uh, technique to to use. And uh, that was sort of repeated over and over again in terms of uh, people's responses. From from what I understand, there is a bit of a science to this survey uh, development in terms of how many questions, what kinds of questions, um, and how many you send out. Can you spend a few minutes talking a little bit about that? We wanted to make sure that the questions were straightforward and that people wouldn't read too much into them besides what we were trying to get across. So we initially sent out the survey to a group of emergency medicine residents um, at the University of Chicago to sort of ask them how the question sounded and if it made sense. And so we thought it was important to initially um, do a, a mock survey with this other group. And then we wanted to keep it short so that people were more likely to answer the question. So we kept it to around 10. And then we wanted to be sure to have an area at the end where they could write in comments, which we also thought was, was really helpful. I might add a couple of things to um, Dr. Merchant's explanation. There is indeed um, some science uh, to serving in general and web serving in particular. 
Uh, and um, there are a number of issues if, if other people in our listenership are considering doing survey-type work. One is the issue of simplicity. Uh, questions, it's, it's been well shown that questions need to be straightforward with simple answers and simple choices if, if for the cleanness and interpretation of the data. Um, but then also there's an important issue of whether a survey should be incentivized or non-incentivized, the issue of whether you pay people for the survey or not. The literature on surveying methodology seems to support that a non-incentivized survey, certainly you get less of a response rate, but you tend to get people who are more motivated to answer. Um, and in this case, it was an important aspect of our work uh, because if anything, we wanted to overestimate the use of cooling. We understood from our prior work that people in general were not taking quickly to this technique. And so, if anything, we wanted to make it look as good as we could to kind of get an upper limit, as it were, on utilization. So a non-incentivized survey for this sort of thing, therefore, is more useful. Incentivized surveys, you get a higher response rate, but um, uh, perhaps uh, less accuracy in your data, and, and also certainly um, you get kind of a broader range of uh, responses. So so it is important, actually, and there is a literature out there that, that other folks who are thinking about survey work can, can access. And in terms of, well, I had two other questions along those lines. If you could address the number that you decided, uh, the response rate, and in terms of did you do decide about doing it web plus minus sending out uh, paper as well? So certainly uh, the web versus mail is an interesting question, and we chose web largely for simplicity because we wanted to do a very, very large number of, of people. And so, you know, there's just practical issues of postage and this sort of thing. And the other thing is the advantage of the web is if, if one has directories of physicians, uh, it's, it's a fairly simple matter to get it out to everybody. So, so that's kind of the web versus mail. And then as far as the number of physicians, we really wanted to, I mean, in this sense, it was a simple thing. We just wanted to get as many as we could. Uh, we did want to focus specifically in the fields of interest. In other words, physicians who would be in a position of possibly using cooling. That we felt most logically this would include um, cardiologists, critical care physicians, and ER physicians. So, you know, for example, we didn't want to ask dermatologists uh, or, or other folks who, who weren't going to be using this from a day-to-day -day basis. That, that data would probably be less useful. And so we, we specifically chose directories of physicians in those fields and, um, and kind of got the number we got. There wasn't so much of a question of powering. In survey work, if you're not really doing comparison groups, powering is, is a little bit tricky. So we, we literally just tried to get as many names as we could from these directories. One of the other advantages is that if you do a web-based survey, the, the data then gets entered directly into like a Microsoft Access database or something like that. Is that correct? That's right. So, um, right. In, in the web-based survey, it's very easy methodology to kind of cut and paste and, and access the data electronically. So, um, right. So there's no uh, concern of data entry and therefore um, introducing error or that sort of thing. And you sent it out to uh, quite a few international physicians as well, correct? Um, it, within the different directories, we selected physicians who primarily primary home base was outside of the United States, and we focused on uh, Europe, Finland, and Australia. We also collaborated with two physicians um, in Finland, and we translated the survey into Finnish and um, had those physicians distribute the survey to specific groups of critical care physicians that they had um, surveyed previously. And so that way we think we got a, a better sense of the use of hypothermia in Finland. Then for Australia, like I said, we used physicians who lived in Australia who were members of these um, professional associations like American Heart Association, American Thoracic um, Society, et cetera. And the reason, uh, in case re listeners are curious why we chose these countries, 
there were there was some method to the madness. The um, Australia is where the initial work, um, Bernard et al., uh, New England Journal of Medicine, 2002, uh, came out of uh, came out of a, a large study in Australia. So Australia was chosen because they were kind of first and foremost in, in clinical use of hypothermia, and Finland also because they were part of the hypothermia after cardiac arrest trial network that was the HACA trial, uh, again, New England Journal of Medicine, 2002. And so we wanted to choose two countries or regions that we believed had a much higher utilization rate, or at least could hypothesize they might have a higher utilization rate, based on the fact that those countries had a much higher awareness and were part of the initial publications. Um, this was basically to have a best-case comparator uh, to the U.S. data. I thought in the next part of the interview, I'd let you guys... Uh talk about some of your important and interesting results, I, I suppose, sort of focusing on your figure two, if you have your paper out in front of you, uh, talking about the percentage of physicians who had never applied cooling, and then comparing, I guess, U.S. Uh, versus abroad, if you'd like to sort of take it from there. Sure. Well, looking at figure two, we basically have uh, two graphs, which represent the distribution of U.S. physicians who have or have not used cooling after resuscitation. And in comparing the two graphs, we have all U.S. respondents and all non-U.S. respondents. And interestingly enough, we found that 26% of the U.S. respondents as compared to 36%, the non-U.S. respondents said that they had actually used uh, cooling after cardiac arrest. And this is comparison to uh, 74% and 64% who hadn't. And these, although they were different surveys than the one we previously did in 2003, um, this perhaps represents a, a slight improvement um, in the course of a year of uh, physicians reporting using cooling. Dr. Abella, any comments on this? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things that that really comes out of these results is, first of all, the low utilization rates in general. That you know, we, we specifically phrased the question, have you ever used cooling? Um, so we really wanted to get a, the broadest possible response for people who'd even tried it once. And, and utilization rates still are quite low. And uh, they're certainly higher in these other locations, um, although the, although not certainly anywhere approaching 100%. Um, but I think it really underscores the fact that there's a lot of uh, a lot of work left to do to really disseminate hypothermia education and knowledge uh, throughout the United States critical care, cardiology, emergency medicine populations. Uh, this is a technique that um, is difficult, is a little unconventional, um, uh, and certainly requires a systems approach. It's, it's not a medication one physician can prescribe, but it requires buy-in from nursing and, and hospital systems. And so uh, for these reasons, it's understandable that it's slow to be incorporated. Um, and But it, what was interesting is that uh, even at the physician level, uh, it seemed that there was a lot of lack of awareness and skepticism. And so there's a lot of work, I think, left to be done uh, for those who, who believe the data on this technique to kind of help educate and uh, formulate protocols and, and get this information out there to the medical community. I think that, as, as we mentioned before, that with the new AHA guidelines that, uh, that may encourage more physicians to want to use this this therapy, and I think the exciting thing is that U.S. physicians, I think, are moving forward to learning how to best apply this this new therapy uh, for their patients. You know, I, another interesting part I, I thought of your paper were the reasons that people put for not applying cooling after cardiac arrest, and I'm just going to list the four of them and let you guys make some comments because I think this is really important, and, and perhaps if you'd like to address those, you know, not enough data, not part of ACLS too difficult, and many put not considered cooling. And if you wanted to spend a few minutes, I think this is very worthwhile discussing some of these issues. I think the first 
two actually probably now go together, the not enough data and not part of ACLS guidelines. The recent AHA recommendations also have lots of references for um, the latest uh, studies that have been done in cooling patients after cardiac arrest. And so we did this study um, several months prior to the guidelines coming out. So I think that we may see some actual changes in uh, physician use if these were two of the um, leading reasons why they weren't using the, uh, the therapy yet. And the two difficult one is also <clears throat> very interesting because we really don't have very many protocols in existence now which detail how to best implement the therapy. One of the things that we've done is we've set up a website where we've listed our cooling protocol and the cooling protocol from several other institutions, which will sort of provide people with some uh, suggestions for, for how to start using this therapy. And I hope this survey and a lot of the other um, um, trials that are ongoing right now will sort of detail a bit more how people are using cooling and their exact methodology. And as we get more data, um, I think that this too difficult part will become less important. Uh, I can expand on that a little bit as well. I think that um, uh, this is indeed a, a, a difficult technique. It involves uh, buy-in from a number of hospital kind of groups, including nursing and, uh, and uh, certainly other physician groups to kind of help monitor and follow these patients. And so the most important thing for those out there who want, who believe this data and really want to uh, implement cooling in their hospital is they need to develop a protocol. And the, the protocol has to be hospital-wide. And so um, that's why we set up the website to, to kind of offer protocols so folks didn't have to reinvent the wheel uh, but could kind of pick and choose aspects of, of different hospital protocols that they liked. Um, but it really does have to be a formulated, written-down, system-wide approach that requires buy-in uh, from a variety of hospital groups. And so uh, the lead time to get something like this set up uh, takes a couple of months at the least. Um, and, and so people should be aware that, that these sorts of things will take some time. Uh, but once you get a protocol in place, things in our experience and in the hospitals, we've helped set up protocols, uh, things just seem to flow pretty smoothly from there. In case anyone who's listening is interested, our website is hypothermia.uchicago.edu. And again, this isn't just the University of Chicago approach, but also has links to a lot of the recent articles on hypothermia. It has protocols from uh, other institutions and a link for a recent um, talk at American Heart Association that Ben and I did um, about how to um, implement um, cooling after cardiac arrest. I should also say that the the website it doesn't have www. It's http colon backslash backslash hypothermia.uchicago.edu. Um, it seemed that you said you did a logistic regression analysis and found that two variables were found to be independent markers of using cooling and that it was a special, the specialty of the clinician and working outside of the United States. And if you could uh, talk about that a little bit, I think that's important. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. And so, so certainly working outside the United States is, is, a, is a strong uh, predictor of use of hypothermia. It, it seems that in Europe, um, especially, hypothermia utilization has really taken off in this application. Uh, Australia as well, and in fact, in Australia, they're even beginning to do it in the EMS setting. Um, so as folks are resuscitated from cardiac arrest in the field, uh, there are a number of trials going on using ice-cold saline and other cooling methodologies uh, before they even hit the hospital. So, so it's really taken off, and I think uh, this is for a variety of reasons um, uh, that the U.S. has been slower to adopt, but, but that seems to be the case. The, um, as far as the other predictor, the specialty, that, that we found interesting. Um, and it speaks, again, I think, to local cultures of physician groups 
and how information gets disseminated among physicians. Uh, uh, it's really kind of an interesting, in a way, case study of, of dissemination of new knowledge, uh, much like the story of beta blocker utilization after MI uh, or aspirin utilization after MI or any kind of new... Um, well, low tidal volume ventilation after a, or, for ARDS. Exactly, or, or, or a number of the ventilation strategies as they come out. You know, a large paper gets published, and then you can kind of watch the trickling out effect. And it's kind of a fascinating topic in and of itself, how information uh, moves in the medical community. But I think definitely it moves in a cloistered fashion within distinct academic groups. So in other words, uh, critical care physicians go to critical care lecture series and, and symposia and national conferences. And so if there's kind of buy-in um, on a topic uh, in that group, it disseminates within that group, and that's the community that they kind of share. And, and, and so one sees this kind of cloistering that emergency physicians have been slower to adopt, uh, for example, than some other groups. Um, but then there are some, some real reasons as well why this might be the case. Um, you know, ER physicians culturally um, don't hold on to these patients for follow-up, and so improvements in post-resuscitation care are largely a longer term, and when I say longer term, I mean several days to weeks sort of phenomena as opposed to the first 12 hours, and so it doesn't necessarily fit in with their, their training or the rubric of their care, uh, whereas critical care physicians are usually the ones left to care for these folks in, in the days and weeks following an arrest. So, so there's some real reasons that that actually makes sense as well, but, but then I think it speaks a lot to kind of where the, the firewalls are, as so to speak, um, for medical education. On a patient-by-patient basis, uh, anecdotally, um, there will still be a lot of bad outcomes, and so it does require faith in the data. Um, you know, it, it, uh, we see a lot of takeoff um, on hypothermia utilization within a given institution when they have a couple of success stories. In other words, you need to kind of get past that faith and kind of feel it, as it were, or, or see, see the success. And unfortunately, the um, power of, of the benefit, as it were, uh, is, is not astronomical. And again, one of the other points I would imagine that you would bring up in terms of uh, improvement uh, with compliance is not unlike the surviving sepsis campaign and sepsis bundles, now that this has been sort of, I guess, quote-unquote, bundled into the new AHI guidelines, that might help things, right? Yeah, I think, I think that's going to be a very important step forward. One thing that our work, I think, definitely underscores is the power of the ACLS guidelines in the way people approach cardiac arrest patients. And uh, the codification of new knowledge in ACLS really does seem to make a big difference in systems approaches. And so, yeah, so I think the fact that hypothermia has now gotten a fairly solid endorsement by the AHA should really uh, accelerate the process. Uh, at least we, we can only hope so. And we'll certainly want to do a follow-up study in uh, the next in the coming year to kind of look at uh, how these new guidelines have impacted physician utilization. Even after, if a hospital decides they want to do this, there's still multiple ways to do it, getting very sophisticated techniques with catheters versus saline uh, intravenously that's cooled versus surface cooling. And, and this is, you know, this can be some of the challenging issues is what's the right way to, or what is a right way to proceed, you know? Absolutely. And, and one can spend a lot of money or very little money on, on these techniques. And I think... Um, um, different institutions will need to take different approaches depending on very local factors and local um, preferences. Uh, on our website, we have links to a variety of the companies that one can engage in conversation to see whether those products are good or bad for that given institution. Um, certainly, there are institutions that are just going with ice bags, very kind of low-tech uh, and, and cheap techniques. Um, we in our institution found them to be problematic just from a kind of nursing 
uh, practical application standpoint. But but that certainly may not be the case for all places. And so it is it is something that will require some thinking and some research and, and so forth, which certainly impedes utilization as well. I was going to ask you, maybe we could conclude by letting you talk a little bit about your experience at the University of Chicago. Is your cooling team sort of part of your cardiac arrest team, or how does that work at the University of Chicago? Well, we all try to work together under the our emergency resuscitation center here. So we do a very detailed review of all the codes that occur, and then we also have set up um, a a cooling after cardiac arrest pager. And so that's the Dr. Icy system here, which uh, <laughs> is covered by Ben or I most of the time. But um, that has really sort of helped, I think, move this therapy along and having a champion at our institution or several champions at our institution that will sort of um, do monthly in-services with the, with the residents and um, with the attendings, sort of reminding people about this therapy and then being linked in with all of the arrests that occur so that we know which patients may uh, benefit from, from the therapy. So we've had a cooling protocol for about two and a half years at our institution and um, we track our, our, we leave a lot of the, the details up to the, um, the teams in terms of deciding which patients are best, but then we offer lots of guidance along the way. And like I said, doing the, the in-services with residents and nurses, I think has also been really helpful. Are the majority of the patients that do this, is, is it most of the time through the emergency department, or is it half and half the floor versus the emergency department? Or? We're primarily cooling patients in the inpatient setting. And so if there are survivors from the out-of-hospital setting, then in the emergency room we try to be pretty aggressive and make sure that the cooling starts pretty quickly. But a lot of our um, arrests that we see here in the inpatient setting, and so we're primarily um, cooling uh, those patients. It's largely, again, local factors. We just happen to have a fairly sick in-hospital population that has a decent amount of cardiac arrest incidents. And then um, as far as out-of-hospital arrest, we tend to unfortunately suffer from a very, very low resuscitation rate um, from out-of-hospital arrest. And that has a lot to do with a variety of factors, um, the urban center, difficult response times, this sort of thing. Um, so, so, but but that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Other institutions may find that they have a lot of out-of-hospital arrest, um, but but we've been fairly aggressive about pushing it for in-hospital arrest, which currently is a Class 2B recommendation from AHA, which which to translate means it um, the AHA supports its use in theory, um, but does not say that this really must be done, but it's something one can consider. So it's kind of a, a middle position as opposed to a Class 2A, which is for out-of-hospital arrest, where the AHA definitely recommends doing it. Um, so anyway, we, we, we do it for in-hospital arrest, and I think the important point that's made our protocol work is you do need at any given institution a hypothermia czar, as it were, um, someone who really is the point person for following up on these patients, for contacting physicians, for making sure that everyone is kind of reminded that this is a therapy that they can consider, for troubleshooting with nurses if they do cool folks. And, you know, it, this isn't such a frequent occurrence, I think, at most hospitals that it becomes too onerous, but it does definitely take some time. And, and requires someone to kind of uh, push it forward. Uh, and then I, I liken this to kind of starting a, a, a fire. You've got some embers that you have to kind of constantly blow on and fan. Once the fire catches, it catches. And at our institution now, it's pretty well uh, ingrained in the culture to, to do this. Um, but it does take some time. And in most places, our experience anyway, 
most places will find that it'll take three to six months of kind of constant fanning, blowing on embers, doing in-servicing um, before it really catches. And you were saying that one of the ways to help make things go faster, as you said, to if you can get some positive results, to share those with the other members of the, of the hospital and community and things like that? Absolutely. That's very important. Um, I, I can just tell a case from our hospital in brief. Um, we had a, a 34-year-old woman who... Um, who came in for an uh, outpatient uh, surgical procedure, a uh, perfectly healthy young lady with undiagnosed long QT syndrome who had an arrest when given some pre-medications for her surgery. Uh, it took 45 minutes to get her back for a variety of reasons. Um, so 45 minutes of downtime in a perfectly healthy young person, uh, ventricular fibrillation arrest. So this is the kind of patient that, that is kind of ideal for hypothermia. This is someone who might end up severely neurologically disabled after recovery. She was cooled um, fairly quickly after her arrest uh, and actually is home right now, um, fully functional, back to work and so forth. Um, so really remarkable success. And that really did a lot for helping um, make believers of some of the folks in our hospital. Certainly we made uh, made for some very grateful surgeons <laughs> who were taking care of this woman. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's, you won't always get that. Cardiac arrest patients in general are quite ill. Um, even when resuscitated and even when cooled, they can be quite ill. And, and, and so it's certainly not a miracle cure. Uh, but you do this enough times, and, and it, at least if, if, if one looks at the data, uh, you'll definitely reduce uh, both morbidity and mortality in some fraction of these patients who otherwise might be neurologically devastated or, or, or succumb to the illness. What particular technique do you guys use? Is it the cooling catheters or the surface or, or ice, and, or has that changed over time? Can you talk about that maybe? So we started out with, with ice cooling, um, surface cooling, and, as, and we had a number of technical kind of problems. It, the nurses were not thrilled with lots of dripping water all over these ICU patients and other lines and so forth. Um, and we also found some degree of a difficulty with temperature control. Uh, so we went with an endovascular solution um, by, uh, by one of the companies. And I should say with full disclosure that Dr. Merchant and myself do not have any ownership, any stock, or any intellectual property in hypothermia. So we're, we're just end users. We don't represent any companies. <laughs> but our hospital decided to go with one of the companies and, um, and have had actually very good success with this endovascular cooling device. There are, I should say there are probably three or four companies out there with FDA-cleared products for this. And um, and uh, listeners should be welcome to look on our website. The links to all of them are there, and they can kind of look around. There's external cooling pads. There's internal catheters. The advantage of all the devices, albeit they're expensive, is that they have feedback mechanisms whereby the cooling is controlled thermostatically, usually from a, uh, a bladder temperature probe or a rectal temperature probe, um, so that it doesn't require constant vigilance uh, on top of the temperature. The device kind of um, servo-regulates uh, temperature itself. So you basically type in the temperature and it clamps it, uh, which is, makes the nurses very happy. Dr. Merchant, do you have any uh, concluding remarks about what it's like to be involved in a project like this during your residency? <laughs> well, it's been it's been uh, really exciting, and it's, it's fun for me because I'm primarily doing the monthly in-services with the residents who are my colleagues, and I get really excited when they page me about a potential patient to be cooled. So uh, people, I think, come to me as the, the cooling person, <laughs> which has uh, made a, it's just been kind of a fun. And I think that sort of the exciting thing that we found in this paper and, and the feedback that we've gotten when we've spoken with people who are uh, just starting out cooling is that there really is a lot of interest um, in this new therapy. And I think that physicians are really just sort of 
learning how to use it better and which techniques are going to work best for, for their hospital. So I think in the next uh, coming months and years, it'll be interesting to look at the diffusion of uh, cooling after cardiac arrest and say how this uh, new therapy is, is being applied so that we can report on more and more sort of uh, patients with improved neurologic outcomes. Well, we've been speaking today with Raina Merchant, MD, and Benjamin Isabella, MD, from the University of Chicago regarding their recently or soon-to-be-published article in Critical Care Medicine entitled Therapeutic Hypothermia Utilization Among Physicians After Resuscitation from Cardiac Arrest. And um, we're going to leave uh, your contact information, email sort of thing, at the in the show notes, so if people have questions, they'll be able to uh, contact you that way. Thank you so much both for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. This concludes our podcast for Wednesday, June 21st, 2006. Look for future podcasts featuring a wide variety of information important to critical care practitioners, including interviews with authors and discussions with prominent members of the critical care community. If you have comments, questions, or ideas for future podcasts, please call the Society of Critical Care Medicine's audio feedback line at 1-847-493-6498 to share your thoughts. Critical Care Medicine is the official journal of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, offering the latest information about critical care to healthcare professionals. Members of the Society of Critical Care Medicine receive a free subscription, as well as other benefits. For more information, visit www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening. Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new Clinical Strategies and Skills Simulation in Pediatric Critical Care or the expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM Customer Service Representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.